passage I want us to look at this morning is in Philippians chapter 4, and that will be our text for today, verses 10 through 13. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, page 832 in the Pew Bibles. This is Paul summarizing to the church at Philippi his message. I greatly rejoice in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is God's word. The Tenth Commandment, as we've read, calls us to not covetousness, but contentment. And contentment, Paul says, is an elusive thing. We aren't born with contentment. In fact, we're born with discontentment. We want food. We want our mothers. We want, we want clothing. We want, as we grow older, we want toys. We want stuff all the time. Never satisfied, parents say. You're never satisfied. And they're right. We want more and more and more. The Tenth Commandment says that we must love the Lord enough to not turn our heart in that direction, to put nothing before him. But contentment is an elusive thing, and as I say, it has to be learned. Paul says it is not only possible, it is commanded by the Tenth Commandment. Autarkia is the Greek word. It means full in yourself, satisfied within. Not satisfied with yourself, but satisfied simply by yourself, and as the Scriptures teach us, in the sufficiency of God. He's all I have. He's all I need. This is a very fundamental and foundational question. One might think because it's the Tenth Commandment that it may be less important because it wasn't placed first or second or third. This is a significant commandment because it asks us, Are you happy with the Lord, or must you have more? Francis Schaeffer said, The Christian is one who believes in Jesus Christ plus nothing. But you and I, of course, live in a world where nothing is not enough, where nothing is not acceptable. Coveting is an inner grasping. It says, I must have these things. Sometimes because they have it. It is the sin, Paul says in Romans 7, that brought him to see his need for the gift of eternal life. Verse 7, Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. In verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead. 
Paul, we know, was not was Saul, and he was not a casual man about regarding the law. He had been trained in it. He was a Pharisee. He was seeking to be a teacher and was a teacher of the law. He had given himself very seriously to it. He hadn't wandered into covetousness. He was seeking to avoid it. But the more he looked, particularly at the Tenth Commandment, we're getting a little autobiography here, the more he looked at the Tenth Commandment, he, thought, he saw that he wasn't keeping any of them. And he says, I died. When I saw how feeble was my obedience to the Tenth Commandment, how insufficient I was in myself, how, how much I had to have more, even if it was more of religion and more of religious things and religious activities, I died. It produced in me every kind of coveting, and apart from the law, sin was dead. So if Paul had a problem with it, we're nowhere close. Nowhere close. And maybe if these other commandments and somehow, in some way, seem remote to you, certainly this one doesn't. This one, above the others, is not lodged in some way in necessarily outside activity or response. We know that adultery can be committed in the heart and in actuality in action. We know that Killing and murder can take place within our hearts and hatred, and it can actually take place in the world. We know that lying and cheating and dishonoring our parents can take place not only in the heart, but also out in the activities of this life. But covetousness lodges and resides primarily in the heart. And its opposite, as we've seen, is contentment. So Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. He had been complaining that they had been neglecting him and his work. You had opportunity to show it, and I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. God taught him this. It wasn't born in him naturally. He says, I know what it is to be in need and what it is to be in plenty, and I have learned, he's been educated, I have learned the secret of being content. Contentment is something that we know about. We may experience it in a fleeting way, but it always seems to elude us over time and in its fullness. There are two, two reactions I want to lay before you that people have regarding covetousness. As I say here, some people decide that the objects they desire must be those things which will satisfy them. I have to have it. It could be a possession. It could be a person. It could be a status. It could be an idea. It's a long list of things of what it could be, and the list that's given in in the Tenth Commandment is not intended to be exhaustive. It's merely there to illustrate that almost anything out there can be the object of our covetousness and can ruin our contentment. So it's possible to decide that the objects that we desire must be those things which will satisfy us. I don't usually quote Groucho Marx, But this morning I'll venture. He said, no man is completely unhappy at the misfortune of his friend. Right? 
No man is completely unhappy at the misfortune of his friend. That gets underneath this, and it says, yeah, he may be my friend, but I want what he has, and more so. I've got to have that. And so for many people, it becomes the controlling and driving influence of their life. It's very, in its expressions, they're very different kinds of things that people want. Fame, fortune, peace and quiet, a loving family, all the things that seem to elude us, more time, all the things that we want. We have this sense that something's got to be satisfied, so I quote Mark Twain now. You see the quote there. You don't know quite what it is that you do want, but it, is just, but it just fairly makes your heart ache that you want it so. There's a sense of desire and incompleteness, a longing for home, a longing for satisfaction, a longing for God that we give other names to. And we say, if I had that, then I would be content. I could be content. Now, this is disproved every Christmas when children get what they want for the most part and the next Christmas want something else, or even maybe by Easter or by their birthday. We know this is true. What is the secret of learning for contentment? John says we long for three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That covers everything pretty much of what of what we would like to have. House, spouse, possessions. We base our lives on getting these things, but they cannot bear the weight that we want to give them. So we are always disappointed. I've got to have it, and it becomes an idol. Turn with me to the cover of the bulletin and a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British preacher of the last century. What are we talking about? We're talking about idolatry. We're talking about things. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. We've got this part of us, this main, main central part of us, that should only be filled by God, but we want other things to do it because we refuse to submit. An idol is anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time and attention, my energy and my money. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. Idolatry. And it's different for different people. So we can see it in someone else. They say, well, he's, she's caught up, she's got to have that, or she can't take a breath. We see it, and we don't see our own problem and our own blindness. And that's what, Paul, that's what happened to Paul. He thought he was doing fine. He thought he was building his life on the solid rock, and he found out that he was coveting to the point of death. So some people have decided that these objects will satisfy them, and they're pursuing them, and that explains an awful lot about what's going on around us. But so also some people have decided to stop building their life on anything. They become cynical, and they withdraw, bitter. And they say, I'm not going to covet anything because nothing will satisfy me from a negative and hateful perspective because the experience of life has been hard. But for the believer, 
That's understandable. That's understandable for the unbeliever. But for the believer, we need to work on our hearts so that we learn what contentment is and we take it. So what is it? I try to define it here briefly. It is the ability to say, God, you are enough. I love you. I want your honor and not the acclaim of others. It is your love and not the love of others that is most fundamental. You are, as the psalmist says, you are my sufficiency. In other words, I don't need anything else because I have you. That's contentment. That doesn't subject itself to shifting circumstances. That's the solid rock that Jesus was talking about building our house upon, that he is our sufficiency, and that these other shifting sands which can go from place to place and side to side are not worthy of our respect and time. But how do we get it? How do we get to contentment? Paul says he has had to learn it. Let me suggest some things from the Scriptures and from my own experience. The first thing is you need to take the attitude that you don't care what other people think of you. Not cynically, not bitter, because you feel like you've lost and people have trampled over you, or because you feel like you've been mistreated and misunderstood by them. You just simply don't make that the first thing. For most of us, the thing we covet is the status and support of our peers and people that we respect. And we will do anything to have that. In terms of our possessions, in terms of our job, in terms of our education, we've got to have a certain level of competency with our friends. And it's really about that more than it is about calling. I don't care what people think of me. Secondly, as he says in verse 13, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. So even if they are richer and more beautiful and more successful and more everything else, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He can be my sufficiency. And I can do what I need through him. And he can make of me what he wants. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. So there's a certain selflessness in contentment, a demoting of the self and of one's opinions, purposefully, intentionally. As I say in the application, it's not that you can't trust God in the circumstances of life. It's a matter of refusing to distrust yourself. Doubt your doubts. You've got to have this thing. Are you really right about that? I must have this or I cannot live. Is that really so? I doubt it. The problems you face is that we are living a life of faith in ourselves either full of grasping or deeply cynical, yet we have the confidence that we can run our lives, that it, but that is an illusion and it's not based on evidence. In fact, if you are, in fact, you are not avoiding the inner call to covet if you submit to it. So as with Paul, this commandment that slays us can be the pathway to life. For all of us need this. 
May he give us the contentment that comes only from his throne and through faith in his Son. The learning of contentment comes through the failing of life. We see that we haven't gotten what we wanted. And our response is one of two ways. We become bitter and we withdraw and we become critical of that person or those things. Or we find our rest in Christ and our hope in Him. This is the pathway to life. Jesus submitted Himself to the Father's will. And though He might have been led to covet more time and more ease and more acclaim, He found His sufficiency in the Father. There are many things that we would like to have or see happen. The list is virtually endless. But the answer is not to to aspire after them and to only learn the painful lesson in old age that though you may have achieved 90% of it, it's it's not enough. It's never enough. Learn the lesson of the child. Learn early on, as Paul did, to be content in him. This doesn't mean necessarily that uh, this is not a definition necessarily of loss. You know, people like to keep score, and I've got this, and you've got that, and I've got a little more of this and a little more of that. My kids are better behaved than your kids. My children are more successful than your children. My job is more significant than your job. My spouse is more successful than your spouse, more beautiful, more handsome. I mean, it's an endless list. And it's never enough. So I plead with you. I plead with myself. Let God be your sufficiency. He can take care of you. He can and will give you what you need. He will supply your greatest aspirations, not necessarily giving you what's on your list, but providing the foundation of support that we need. We need a friend, and he'll be that friend, a friend who doesn't measure things that way. We need approval and, and, and appreciation, and his is the only one in the universe that really matters. We need to be delivered from the pursuit of things which are idols. And only he can do that. This sermon can't do it. The scriptures can't do it. Only the God, the Holy Spirit, God, the Lord himself can do it for us. It's a more serious problem than we're willing to acknowledge. I would say, of the Ten Commandments, this one is probably the most often transgressed, except for the first. Certainly by me and maybe in my observation by others. A lack of contentment. A giving oneself over to covetousness. I've got to have that. I need it so bad that I can't even tell anybody how badly I need that. Who is your sufficiency? Who is my sufficiency? 
Who will be the one who will satisfy my heart? These things? My fickle friends? Only Jesus. And he has done so not only at the cross forensically and by his blood, but also in by his, sending his spirit to lead and guide us that we might have life and have it to the full. Christianity is not life on the cheap. Christianity is not less. It is far, far more. Right? Let us pray. You have proven yourself, O Lord, to be very generous to us. You have answered many, many, many prayers in the way that we wished and desired. And when you didn't answer prayers the way we wanted you to, we saw later that you were right. This day, be our sufficiency. Teach us the lesson of contentment. Help us to rejoice in our present circumstances and in what you are doing and what you will do in and through us. Grant us your peace and teach us the secret of contentment, which is that you would be our sufficiency. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.